0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Synergen Leadership Podcast. My name is Julian Carl, CEO and co-founder of Synergen Group. And look, today's episode, I speak with David Pitch, who is the Chief Executive of the Institute of Managing Leaders. A particularly interesting interview today because David explains what the Institute actually does and that's all about uh, providing a chartered status to anyone that goes through their accreditation process and he also takes the time to share his leadership journey and and some of his lessons along the way. So I think you'll find it a a really useful interview specifically if you are someone that really wants to continue to develop your leadership and uh, get recognised for that. So have a listen, love to hear what you think. So head over to iTunes or Stitcher, leave us a review and happy listening.
1: Welcome to the Synergen Leadership Podcast with Julian Carl. Julian speaks with leaders from around Australia to bring you their leadership story and share their insights about being a leader. To further help you build your leadership capability, Julian shares his own insights about leadership and the tools and techniques he uses as a leader.
0: Welcome, David, to the Synergy and Leadership podcast. Appreciate you taking the time to be a part of it. So that the listeners have some context, could you share a little bit about the position you hold and uh, the company where you work at the moment?
1: Yeah, thanks, Julian. Well, thank you uh, very much for the invitation. I'm absolutely delighted to be chatting to you. So I'm I'm um, David Pick, and I'm the Chief Exec of the Institute of Managers and Leaders, which um, many of your listeners may not have heard of, but I'm sure most of them would have heard of the Australian Institute of Management, or AIM, and we rebranded in uh, around about July last year and uh, morphed into the Australian um, Institute of Managers and Leaders, or IML, as we, uh, as we call ourselves. Okay, and if, can you share
0: with the listeners an interesting fact that they may not know about uh, IML?
1: Ah, oh, well, I mean, I, I suppose in one sense I've just um, I've just given away probably the most interesting fact, it, 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 and, and that is that uh, we used to be the Australian Institute of Management. But there's a couple more here. Um, so uh, one very interesting fact I would I would hope is that we are the oldest leadership institute in the world. Um, so we are 77 years old um, this year, and um, we actually started out um, as the Melbourne Technical College um, uh, back down in, uh, in Victoria, and we've had a couple of name changes over the years. Uh, for the vast majority of our history, as I say, we were the Australian Institute of Management, and we've only been IML um, for less than 12 months, actually. Uh, but yeah, no, we have a long and rich history. And we have a membership base in excess of 10,000 members.
0: Fantastic. So I'd like to take you back all the way to the beginning of your leadership journey. Are you able to share what your very first leadership role was, uh, such as who it was with and what you did?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, so I graduated from university. Um, you can probably tell from my accent. Um, I have a slightly northern English accent. So I was born in Manchester and I went to university and I graduated and I joined Cabri Schweppes. Uh, many, many of your listeners would probably have um, a similar story of luck in their career. And um, I had a stroke of luck at Cabri Schweppes. Um, I worked in the HR department. Um, actually, within Cadbury Schweppes, I actually worked for the division which was uh, known as Trebor Bassett, um, and they are famous for, amongst other things, licorice all sorts. Um, and I had a stroke of luck in the HR department. I was a, um, a lowly and um, very excited HR officer, and uh, somebody in the HR team went on maternity leave, um, and I was asked by the director of HR to take over... The, for, for the maternity leave cover, for about a six-month period, I was the head of remuneration uh, for Trebor Bassett at the ripe old age of 22. And um, as I say, it was a stroke of luck, but that was my first management position. I, I, won't, I won't say leadership. I was definitely a, um, you know, a kind of technical manager, uh, managing a team of one, so me and somebody else. Um, but I, I essentially ran all of remuneration. Uh, for Treeball Bassett and at the time they had about four thousand staff so that was my first um that was my first toe in the water of management and leadership back at the age of 22 yes
0: that's a nice young start for you
1: yeah i have absolutely no doubt julian i was absolutely terrible at it um, <laughs> but i've had a, a <laughs> i've learned a few lessons along the way but yeah no it was, uh, i think i think it, many people when they reflect on their career can think of times when something either fell into their lap or they got a you know, stroke of luck or somebody had tremendous faith or confidence in them and uh, yeah, that was the start of mine and the, um, I was incredibly honoured when the HR Director of Treble Bassett um, asked if I would cover the maternity leave and um, I, I genuinely think for those six months I pretty much had no idea what I was doing.
0: And Were there any specific learnings that you took away from those, uh, those six
1: months? I'll look, um, I think uh, I'm more than happy to, to share this story. Um, the, the biggest learning that I took away from from that, and I um, have to kind of move that story on a little bit, um, because uh, essentially what happened was I took I took that role, and then at the end of the maternity leave, um, when um, the the lady who was incredibly experienced in, in remuneration and incredibly experienced uh, leader came back to work. I, of course, um, really wanted to continue in, in management and leadership. So I actually left Cadbury Schweppes um, and I jumped um, uh, to the very first job that I was offered. And, uh, and here's the learning. Um, the learning is don't jump uh, without investigating and without doing your research. Um, because I jumped uh, to an organization um, that, was, that was essentially very old. And it was an insurance company, actually, in the center of London in England. And um, I was offered the role of, of head of remuneration. I was only 23 by that time. And uh, culturally, the organization was A, a million miles from Cadbury Schweppes, um, and B, a million miles from my own um, cultural value system for an organization. And that was really my um, my first, definitely not my last, but definitely my first a career mistake um, and I think it's always worth uh, reflecting on career mistakes but it was definitely my first and um, the thing that I learned was A, don't jump for the wrong reasons, um, I jumped for money, um, you know back in the day I think I was offered an extra 500 quid or something like that which at the time you know when you're 23 you've not long since left university um, you know the carrot was was dangled in front of me and it was absolutely the wrong move in fact, to illustrate to your, to, you, to your listeners that it was the wrong move, I only stayed at the insurance company for three months. Such was the culture of, of the company and um, and uh, such was the conflict of that culture with the things that I believe believed in then and still believe in now, in fact.
0: And so you mentioned that uh, you, you made the deliberate decision to, although it ended up being the wrong one, to move into another leadership role. So was that because mm-hmm. after the taste of Leadership and management in that first role that you decided leadership and management's for me.
1: Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And um, you know, I'd done it for six or seven months, and um, you know, I, I, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed managing somebody and uh, the responsibility that, that 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 came with that. Uh, and I think that's um, I think that's quite a natural reaction. I mean, you know, looking back with hindsight, I could potentially have tried to find a different role in Cadbury Schweppes, but I was, um, you know, full of confidence and my chest was puffed out and all of those kind of things. And, you know, I was, I was very young, you know, and, um, uh, you know, the location of this new company and the role um, just seemed so exciting and different. And, and I went there and I, <laughs> I soon realized it wasn't exciting and it wasn't that different. Well, it was very different, but different in a bad way. But, you yeah, know, I really, um, I I dipped my toe into management and leadership and and I wanted more of it. And uh, I don't think – I think, again, with hindsight, that's not the bad thing. The bad thing was that I went to the wrong company, Um, yeah, and and moved on quite quickly. But you're absolutely right. I wanted to do more of that management and leadership stuff.
0: So you you made the decision to move on after three months. Was the next move the right one for you?
1: Yeah, the the next move um, was probably, um, you know – I'd say that I'd made a mistake and um I think it's uh, I think it's always a wise thing um to admit when you've made a mistake and also to to do what you know you, you have to work in organizations I believe that fit your cultural you know base your cultural heart your you know your your true north as it as it's called these days and um uh, the next company I joined absolutely did meet all of those things, and that's because it was Hewlett-Packard. So I I joined the HR department of Hewlett-Packard, and I was the um, generalist HR manager for what at the time was probably HP's um, most strategically significant division. So it was their computer products division. It was the division that made all of Hewlett-Packard's computers Personal computers and printers, and I was the HR manager um, based in their office in their head office in the UK, which was in um, a place called Amen Corner in Bracknell. And um, that, of course, many of your listeners would know that that was the time where the cultural um, philosophy of Hewlett Packard, uh, which is which was then and is still called the HP Way, was in full force and and the hp way the cultural setting of the organisation was owned uh, for want of a better word but it was really managed and led by the hr team um so you know to to give you to give you an, an example um hp in the uk was one of the first organisations to introduce paid maternity leave and that was actually run by the hr team whilst i was in that hr team i had a I played an absolutely tiny, tiny part in that, but it was run by the team that I worked with and worked for. Um, and I stayed at Hewlett Packard um, in a number of roles. Um, I eventually did move out of HR um, and, and I moved into a sales and marketing role. And then I actually was transferred by Hewlett Packard in the UK to Australia, and that's how I ended up in Australia. So I stayed at HP for a long time. And, and um, HP was really the organization where I learned the most um, about myself in a in a work context and my own management style. And, you know, even today, when I look at my own management and leadership style, much of it um, comes from what I learned at Hewlett-Packard and from the people I worked for and worked with at, at HP. It, it, it's probably... The defining organisation. I would imagine that many of your leaders, if they're listening to this, can can think of those organisations that kind of define their them in a work context or their leadership style. And for me, it was Hewlett Packard.
0: Okay. And were there any significant successes which really stand out for you? You mentioned the, the the paid maternity leave. Is there anything else that really stood out for you in terms of what you're able to achieve through your leadership? Yes.
1: Yeah, so. Um, there's a couple of um, uh, career moments for me personally, um, and there are also things that I was involved in, and um, probably the most significant thing that I was vol- involved in from an HR perspective um, was, and this, is, this will sound strange, of course, because here we are in 2018 talking about this, um, but at the time, um, Hewlett Packard only sold its computers um To third parties, and then they sold them to end user con- consumers. Now that that's changed, of course. Now you you know you can call up and you can buy these things direct. Uh, but at the time, AHP didn't do that, and it was changing to that model. So there was a very significant significant cultural change going in going on in the organisation, and that meant, for example, that it was you know setting up contact centres to deal with customers directly and. And these, all of these things, were very new to the organisation, and I was um, I was uh, intimately involved um, in that with the leadership team of the computer products division. So I was assisting with putting together, you know, contact centres and recruiting people to work in call centres. And Hewlett Packard didn't have any of that, of course, because these were consumer-based, end-user-based contact centres. Um, and that was in- incredibly exciting because it was it was part of a very significant change in the business. So I guess that was um, I, w- I was very close to the centre of the strategy, um, and I was setting the HR strategy that that really supported the business strategy, and that that was incredibly exciting. And from a personal perspective, I think probably the most defining part of that was because of my um, my work with the leadership team of the computer products division, they eventually asked me to leave the HR team and join the sales team. So making that jump from um, a, a support um, part of the business, which was HR, um, to, a, to a customer-facing part of the business, which was the sales team, is something that um, I, was, I was incredibly proud. I was, I was incredibly scared of at the time because I'd been in HR all my life. And I moved out of, of HR into sales and marketing, and um, so that that was a per that was a you know a personal development moment for me.
0: Yeah, well, I wouldn't mind exploring that a little bit further if I could, because that that is yeah, sure. that is in my experience uh, an unusual move from from HR to yeah. sales. So how did that come about, and and what were some of the challenges that you found when you moved
1: into that sales role? well it, it it came about um, really because i sat on the leadership team of the computer products division and as i say it was it was the biggest most profitable and most successful division so to sit on that leadership team was um, you know was inc- was, was incredible it was an incredible honor um and i was i was very close to the center of the strategy as i said you know and i was the person that was expected to implement the hr and the people and the culture side of the strategy but it did mean that I sat in leadership team meetings. I sat in performance meetings with, with the head of the division. Um, uh, his name is Alan. What was was at the time Alan Furness, and um, was in my view a, a really fantastic leader in the organisation. And um, you know, there came a time when there was a there was a position vacant, and he asked me whether I was interested in skipping out of HR and into sales. Now, you know, interestingly, um, I'm a, I'm a bit of a believer in in skills and in the importance of skills rather than disciplines. And I think you'd probably understand, you know, Julian, I, th- I think in you, if you're in HR, you're essentially, part of you is a sales and marketing person. You know, you've you've got your policies and your processes and, and you've got to find, you know, uh, you've got to find unique ways of implementing those to support the business. So I don't, I personally don't see huge differences in the skills that you need to bring to various disciplines and certainly um you know i did a lot i'll give you a classic example in hr i did an awful lot of standing on my feet and presenting and you know talking through various ways of implementing solutions they just happened to be hr solutions but i I didn't find that too different from when i was trying to sell a product you know i had a product that i had to stand up on my feet and and sell it and offer the customer what they wanted so I'm a real believer in focusing on the skills of an of, of a role rather than getting too hooked up on the discipline of that role and all the theory of that role and I think that's um, perhaps that's a lesson um, you know that that's that stuck with me that you know if people are thinking of jumping from one career to another I think it's always a good idea to focus on the skills, you know, rather than the actual discipline that you're involved in.
0: And ultimately, why did you decide to leave HP?
1: Oh, look, I'd um, I, I'd been transferred, so I, I I took an internal transfer from from London to Sydney, um, and once I'd arrived in Sydney, I did. I did stay with HP for about three years, so in total I was probably with HP for about ten years. I just wanted a change, and, um, and another opportunity came up with a different organisation. Again, it was in the IT sector, um, but I just wanted a change, and I, you know, I really wanted to, um, you know, expand my horizons and work for a different organisation. And so I moved um, to Computer Associates, um, and I moved. Um, into a market development role at CA. And um, I have to say, I I didn't really enjoy it. I I found it a very, very different culture to Hewlett-Packard. I found it, um, I found the culture at CA at the time quite aggressive, um, sales aggressive, I mean. and um, A little less appealing to my own personal um, view of teacher. So, I didn't, um, I stayed at CA for about 12 months. But I didn't particularly enjoy it. Now, I, I obviously don't know what the culture of that organization is like now because this was a, this was a fair while ago. Um, so, yeah, the reason I left it I just found it something different. I've been there for 10 years and I, I fancied some change in my life, you know.
0: Okay. So, I'd like to, you've had a taste of leadership in a, in a couple of different roles and organizations. So, I'd like to mm. fast forward to your current role now. Are you able to give the listeners any more context about what your role involves at IML, number of reports, all those types of things?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, there, is, there is something quite interesting about my role at, um, at the Institute, which is probably just worth explaining to, um, to your listeners, and it's this. Um, so I'm the first chief exec of the national um institute, um which was AIM at the time but is now IML. So just to just to give some context on that, um AIM used to be seven state based bodies and they all um sat loosely under a kind of national structure, but they all had their own state based head office and their own management structures, including CEO and um, you know, various associate associated operational support teams. Um, In 2014, those organizations decided to merge into one national body, and I'm the first chief exec of that national body. So I have um, all around Australia, um, we have offices in all states and territories, and I have about 70 staff. Now, I say about because I have some kind of part-time staff and Uh, We have member liaison staff who work just one day a week in some of our, uh, what we call our regions. But I have about 70 staff in all states and and territories, but I run the organization on a national basis and I'm the first chief exec to do that. So I was recruited by the board to put the strategy in place for the, the nationalized entity that was called the Australian Institute of Management, but is now the Institute of Managers and Leaders.
0: Okay, that that sounds like an a, an exciting opportunity.
1: Yeah, well, it, the the thing that, that uh, the, the thing that's most exciting, or or was at the time, and actually remains most exciting about the role, is is not only am I the first chief exec of of the nationalised organisation, and for for a membership. Uh, you know seventy seven year old membership organization to decide to nationalize with that history and, and you know to to come together and dissolve the various state based boards and entities and come together as one was it was a was a very very significant step in in the organization's history in fact you know i go I go around and present a fair that you and so many other membership organizations just look and say, "Oh you know how the heck did you do that you know now, of course, I didn't do that. The board did that and the various boards decided um, to merge into one, which was which was essentially, you know, the kind of turkeys voting for Christmas because many of those directors then um, dissolved off, for want of a better word, they dissolved away from their state-based boards and they handed over control to a central board. So I now report directly to the, to a board of seven directors and those seven are loosely representative um of the old state based bodies okay um, but but actually but actually the most exciting part of the role is that once the organisation had decided to merge into one the second decision they took uh, the board took was to divest of aims training and education business and that that really, if, if you want, if you want the 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 real um, excitement of my role, once they once they divested of the of the training and education business, so you have to remember that AIM has been known as a training organisation, an education business, for about forty years. Absolutely. And AIM, no, Well, absolutely, yeah, yeah, and um, so but that business was was um was sold, for want of a better word. And um, my organization, I, I was brought in by the board to set the new strategy following the, the merger of all the states and following the divestment of the training and education business. So, so essentially, um, <laughs> to, to summarize, I was brought in to answer the question, what are we now as an institute? what are we now that we're no, now that we're merged and now that we no longer are involved in training and education and i was brought in to answer that question and what is the answer to that question <laughs> i knew you were going to ask that um yeah okay so um the answer to that question is The thing that um, I find the most exciting part of of the role now, and looking to the future, the future strategy of the organisation is the answer to that question, and and it's this. Um, Where AIM once saw training and education as the way to develop managers and leaders, and to improve the management and leadership capability and competence of Australia, We, as the Institute of Managers and Leaders, no longer believe that that's the best way of improving management capability. So we we fundamentally believe that the management and leadership landscape has changed and that other people do formal training and education better than we could. And in actual fact, um, we divested of the AIM brand. It still exists and we still own the AIM brand, but we license it to somebody else. So it's, it's offered under license to somebody else and people can still go on AIM training and education courses. But we as the Institute of Managers and Leaders are the accrediting body for management and leadership competence. So we believe that the best way to improve improve and increase management and leadership competence and capability is through professional development and accreditation. So we're the accrediting body for management and leadership competence. And we do that through um, our gold standard designation, which is called Chartered Manager. And if you want to look at that in a different way, um, uh, in, a, in a way that always resonates with people, and I hope it resonates with your listeners, I'll put it, I'll put it like this. Um, we, our, our charter, the things that we do, our purpose is to end the chaos of the accidental manager. We want to rid Australia of accidental managers and we want to replace accidental managers with intentional leaders. And we believe if we do that, management and leadership in Australia can have an impact on broader society. Now, there's a heady, there's a heady goal for, for us to get our, our head around. Well,
0: it's, it's interesting because uh, I'm, has always been, from my perspective, uh, one of the brands that we go up against because you know we, we do the education and training piece, and their, their brand recognition is uh, significant, uh, and still still is to a to a certain extent. So it's it's interesting to to learn and understand why the divestment was made, and I think that you know that that accreditation process, I think that would probably act be quite. Attractive to a lot of leaders who probably already think that they, they they sort of had enough of the standard education and training and are probably looking for a different way to develop their their skills and knowledge.
1: Yeah. Look, the way I think I think that's absolutely right. I, I would I would probably put it this way, and I'd say that um, I definitely think there's a place. Um, in the life cycle or the career of a manager of managers and leaders, for formal training and education, you know, for short courses and for MBAs, and there's absolutely a place. And um, you know, and, and there are providers, including AIM, uh, there are providers that provide those products, um, it, 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 you know, really well, and they're really solid. And um, managers and leaders absolutely get something out of them. But for us. The development of management and leadership competence is broader than that. It's something, it's that, but it's that plus something else. And um, the vast majority of people, and I include myself and I'm sure you know yourself and, other, and, and your listeners, they typically dip in and out of formal education and training over the course of their you know, 30, 40, 50-year careers. They dip in and out of formal training and education. Well, I see the Institute as filling the gap for when those people are not. And those gaps are are huge, by the way. (laughs) People spend more time out of formal education than they do in it. And we're the organization that fills those gaps. So we have a whole suite of leadership development programs, not formal training courses, um, and we also own and assess the global gold standard for management and leadership excellence, and that's called Chartered Manager. And uh, we offer Chartered Manager for um, for people to demonstrate and prove their management and leadership competence, just as an accountant, um, you know, who wants to prove that can become a Chartered Accountant or, or a Certified Accountant. We offer Chartered Manager as the way for managers and leaders to prove their competence and in our words to become intentional leaders. So of course many of your um, many of your listeners would would understand the concept of accidental manager. You know, it's the technical expert who by dint of their technical expertise finds herself or himself in a management position. Of course the issue there is that being a manager is very, very different from being a technical specialist, whether that specialism is accounting or marketing or sales or, you know, or whatever, or, you know, lawyer or or nurse, managing people is very different from managing the technical side of the role. And um, our job is to make sure that the chaos of the accidental manager is reduced. So that organizations can succeed. And we believe that organizations succeed when they have decent management in place.
0: So we've got a we've had a bit of a, a chat about sort of how you found yourself where you are now. I wouldn't mind just exploring yeah. some more general views on leadership. So what do you yeah, think sure. what do you think one of the biggest myths is about leadership that you've come across?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I, I, think, um, I think the biggest myth uh, about leadership is that, is that leaders are born and not made. Um, I, I fundamentally don't believe that you're born a good leader. Uh, so so the, the flip side of that, of course, is to say that people can learn to be good leaders. I don't think there's something innate in leadership. And um, my, my, my strong advice to anybody thinking about going into a leadership position, or you know, or, or perhaps struggling or founder, floundering in their current leadership position, is don't despair because you can be a better leader, and there are ways, and there are skills and attributes that you can work on and develop to make you a better leader. Um, so I quite often um, I quite often give a keynote. Speech. I, I did a. I did the speech in um, in Adelaide this week to a to a group of executives of of um, professional associations, and I talk about uh, the six layers of intentional leadership. These are the things that we, as an institute, believe. The six things we've distilled it to six. We've actually. I actually throw one in at the end of the presentation, so it is actually seven um things that we believe you can learn and work on to be a better leader so i think if we're talking about leadership in general i don't believe that people are born to be to be as good leaders i think i just don't believe that i think you can learn to be a leader and um i think if more people spent time on learning leadership in actual fact the funny thing is it comes back to this accidental manager thing julian i think I think if people spend as much time on learning leadership as they do on learning the discipline that they are expert in, then I think we'd have a much better leadership landscape in Australia. So I'll give an example. I could pick any discipline, but let's take a lawyer for example. You know, if you if you want to lead a legal department, if you spend as much time learning how to lead that department. As you've spent learning how to practice law, I think you'll be both a fantastic lawyer and a great leader, and that's that's possibly revolutionary thinking, isn't it? Because mm. so many people think, "Oh, I can be a really good lawyer, and I just want to lead it." And by the way, I picked I pick lawyers for no reason other than they just came into my head. But mm. it could be the same as you know, doc, doctors. You know, I mean, let me perhaps I could give you an example. I um, We have a partnership with Deakin University. We have a partnership with many universities, actually, you know, Deakin and Griffiths and and many universities, but we have a partnership with Deakin University. And this week, um, I presented, uh, we sponsored some awards at Deakin University, and um, I presented an award to the person that was given the achievement award for their MBA and um i had a chat with him as just as i was presenting him the award and i found out that he was um he was a doctor he ran a medical practice in um he was running a medical practice in tasmania actually in hobart and um i couldn't help but say to him look you know you've you've done seven years of medical training why are you now doing an mba i was just curious and he said oh cuz i, I he said my medical training helps me do medical stuff and you know cure people and and work with patients but i actually run a team of 12 in my medical practice and i have no idea how to manage and lead them and i just looked at him and i said you you are the epitome of why my institute exists you know and i, I was so delighted that we were handing him the award that we'd sponsored because he is a he was a classic example of somebody who Had recognized he was heading down the path of accidental manager and he was putting things in place to become an intentional leader. And one of those things, of course, was he was doing an MBA, but you don't have to do an MBA. But he was taking steps to improve his management and leadership capability because he realized that his technical capability just wasn't cutting the mustard.
0: Yeah, I think you're onto something because I've trained thousands of of leaders at different levels and the story that is so consistent is that they were technical experts and then they got the tap on the shoulder or someone suggested yeah. they they go for a supervisor or leadership role and then all of a sudden they're and then they're because they're so technically competent the expectation is that they just suddenly will be leadership and management competent
1: yeah but you know that you, it's, it's, it's interesting isn't it the funny thing is the more we um, the institute investigates and researches this and we have a we have an entire research team in, in the institute. Um, here, here's something interesting that we, we've discovered. Um, I, I, I mean, just from what you've said, and I'm sure your, your, um, your listeners will, will be nodding their head when they, when they hear this, but I can't help but think that the skills you need to be a good technical expert are in many cases diametrically opposed to the skills you need to be a leader. So if you take if you take, for example, a sales manager, the things you need to do to be a really good salesperson are in some cases, and and, and in really big cases, in really you know important areas, almost the exact opposite of what you need to be to run a sales team. And I find it incredible that quite often the best salesperson He's given the role of a sales manager. It's almost, I mean, I, I myself have worked for a sales manager, I won't, I won't mention the organization, who was utterly dreadful, a dreadful manager, dreadful, but a fantastic salesperson. Mm-hmm. And all he did, and, and in, in this case, it actually wasn't his fault. It was the fault of the organization. All he did was get promoted, and yet, he brought those same skills in. You know, he, he walked out on a Friday as the top performing salesman, and he walked in on Monday as the head of sales. And he, he obviously thought, well, I'll just do the same thing. But of course, the same thing caused chaos, <laughs> absolute <laughs> chaos. Everybody left, everybody left. <laughs> and, and I think um, more and more organizations are starting to see that technical. you need, you need something more than technical competence. Um, and in some cases, you don't actually need the technical competence, strangely enough, um, to, to run organizations and, and teams and departments. And um, that is, is the mission of our organization or the purpose of our organization is to facilitate the change from accidental manager to intentional leader. And um, if, you, if, you're, if your listeners run organizations, I encourage them. To start focusing less on technical skill and more on management competence, be that through formal education or um, professional development. And of course, I wouldn't uh, run an organization that offered Chartered Manager if I didn't say this. Put your people through Chartered Manager because it's a reflective leadership um, program. And that's, that's something that's worth saying in this conversation, that Chartered Manager is based on the concept of reflection. And there are very few professional designations that focus on reflection. But we believe that management and leadership is, at its heart, a reflective process.
0: Well, because I know I've got uh, we've got a lot of listeners that, that that might be interested in that, are you able to share a little bit more about what's involved in the chartered manager? If someone says, oh, I've heard David and I want to investigate a bit more, what would be involved for them?
1: Well, interestingly, um, just before uh, we spoke this morning, I'm actually uh, partway through my own application to become a chartered manager. So it's, um, it's top of my mind and it's, um, it, it's actually driving me mad. So <laughs> let, let me just explain. So yeah, so, um, so the chartered manager designation is obviously chartered through the Privy Council in the UK. And um, as all chartered marks are, so anybody that, that has a chartered mark, it comes from the Privy Council in the UK. Um, So we own and assess the designation for Australia and New Zealand. So the first thing to say is um, you will be assessed locally um, by one of our uh, registered and qualified assessors here in Australia. Um, And there are a number of pathways to become chartered and the pathways are based on um, your level of education, And when I say level of education, you may have no education, no formal education, and that's not a barrier to entry. There are just different ways of entering. So the quickest and easiest way is if you have a management and leadership-based undergraduate or postgraduate degree. um, But don't let... Um, that put anybody off and um, to illustrate why it shouldn't put people off um, I don't have one of those so I'm going through a slightly different route to Chartered because I have a degree in psychology and that's not classed as management and leadership so I'm going through a slightly different route but essentially you have to fill in an application form Um, so to put it very very simply you have to fill in an application form that goes through um, your experience and your education and your skills and all of those kind of things and then you go through an interview process with a, with a, with a trained assessor. Um, and then you may have to do some um, additional either education or experience to bring you up to a certain standard, or you may not. So th- there, are, there are four or five different pathways to become chartered. And I have a team of people at the institute who can help you to assess which pathway suits you the best. Um, I'm going through what's called the non-qualified route because I don't have a management and leadership degree, Um, but that's okay, I'm um, I'm filling in the gaps that I have, some of the theoretical gaps with some online work and some, um, some interviews with some of my assessors, and it will take me about six months to become chartered. Now, the interesting thing, of course, through this process, many people have said to me, oh, that sounds like it's really hard. Well, it is hard because you're becoming chartered. (laughs) So for the first time in Australia, you can become a chartered manager. Um, So I I, I use the example, of course, of chartered accountants. You won't find too many chartered accountants who will sit there and say, oh, that was easy. And nor should they, because it's the gold standard to prove your competence. Um, And the the other thing I'd say about Charter, Julian, is, as I said before, it's a reflective process. So it's typically based around what have you done in management and leadership? um, How have you handled situations? And how would you have done them or could you have done them differently? And all of those questions are based around the 34 competencies that underpin the designation. So the designation is based around 34 management and leadership competencies, and um, all all chartered managers or people going through the application process get asked questions around some of, most of, or all of those competencies. So I hope I'm giving the impression that it's both comprehensive and, and prestigious, because remember, you can end up as a chartered manager, just as you can end up as a chartered engineer or a chartered accountant but it proves your competence in management and leadership and it's the first time in australia and and indeed new zealand that managers and leaders have been able to prove their competence or as we call it make their mark in 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 management and leadership you got me thinking about it now (laughs) (laughs) that's the intention (laughs) when i've spoken to our chartered managers and um we have about 700 of them in Australia at the moment. Those are people that have gone through um, the charter. Uh, the one word that I hear an awful lot of, uh, an awful lot, is the word rewarding. People are finding it incredibly rewarding, and that's because of the reflective process. Um, the, and there's something else to say about it as well, which I, um, we're incredibly proud of, and it's, and it's very unique. And it's to do with continuous professional development or CPD. Uh, now CPD um, is the dreaded phrase um, amongst many people because of course most organizations that have a charter or a designation have a points-based CPD process that goes with it. Well chartered manager doesn't. Um, so I, I fundamentally have a problem with points based CPD because, of course, the organization that offers the designation also offers the points based system to maintain the designation. And I can't help but think that there's something inherently difficult with that process. Well, continuous professional development for chartered managers is about reflection. So you do have to go onto our portal, which you know, you get your number for, and you have to go onto the portal. We you don't have to do points. You have to reflect on management and leadership decisions that you've made. And that's incredibly powerful. And we believe that more and more managers should reflect and ask the question, what could I have done differently in that situation? So essentially, if I want to really summarize it, our CPD is based on keeping a diary, for want of a better word, of your management journey. And I think I'm incredibly proud of that. And I think, it's, um, I think it's both ethical for our organization not to then offer courses, you know, with points attached to them. But I think it's incredibly important for managers and leaders to reflect on decisions that they make. We, we, we spend too little time not, ask, ask, not asking the question, what could I have done differently? I'm,
0: uh, I'm I'm conscious of time, so I did just want to explore yeah. one uh, one thing with you. In that um, we share a publisher, Major Street Publishing. So shout yeah. out to yeah, to do. Leslie. I'm looking at your book right now, Leadership Matters. Yeah. are you able to just speak a little bit to why you decided to write a book?
1: Yeah, of course. So um, so uh, yeah, we I, I I wrote a book. Um. In conjunction with the chair of the board of the institute and Messenger, um, so I do have to say at this point that it's not just my name on the front of that book; it's, it's Anne's as well. Yes. Um, and actually, the seven chapters of the book, which are um, broadly um, lumped, if you like, into the seven skills of leadership, were actually written. Um, both one, one chapter was written by myself, and one chapter was written by Anne. And then the rest of the chapters were written by experts in in the in the in the various fields. Um, So why did why did we decide to write that book? Um, Well, actually, we always decided to write. We we always intended um, to write two books. One would look at the seven skills of successful leadership, and the next one, and we're currently working on it, is going to be called Leading Well. The seven attributes of successful leadership and it, and it comes from um, another view of, of mine and, and a well-researched view around leadership So I fundamentally believe that leadership is Is a is a unique blend of skills and attributes um, The problem I find with leadership these days is everybody focuses on the attributes um, everybody focuses on the bits that the the area the aspects of your personality that you need to have to be a good leader and i think what slightly annoys me is that it's really that's the easy bit it's easy to talk about the inspiration of leadership you know it's the kind of in a sense it's the kind of tony robbins stuff it's the stuff where you know it's the all the you know the rah-rah stuff you know you need to be able to motivate people you need to be able to you know, inspire people. You need self-belief and all of those kind of things. But very few books and very few people and and people in leadership um, positions, where you know, the, very few of these people talk about what I like to think of not as the inspiration of leadership, but the perspiration. Because the thing is. You can inspire people as much as you like and motivate people as much as you like. But if you can't set strategy and you can't define culture and you can't make decisions and you don't have fundamental principles of ethical leadership and you don't believe in inclusion, then you're not going to be a very good leader. You're going to be pretty good at motivating people. But for me, leadership is about inspiration and perspiration. And perspiration are those things that you have to do to be a good leader, not not things that you have to be. And in my own role, of course, I have to be able to motivate people and, you know, I have to be, you know, the nice leader, if you like. But that's not good enough for my board of directors and nor should it be. I need need to be able to set strategy and define culture and take an organization on a journey and do all that stuff that's actually quite hard work. And I think too many leadership books don't focus on that perspiration and that's what we wanted to do. So if people are looking for a kind of really motivational book on leadership, it's not that one. Um, It it is by the way, our next one (laughs) because we will look at, we will look at that inspiration of leadership. And what we want to end up with is, is two books that look at the inspiration and the perspiration and, um, I coined a phrase, I suppose, that I think I've stolen from someone somewhere. Um, And I think leadership is is 99% perspiration and 1% inspiration. You've actually got to be able to do it, to do leadership. So that book, um, Leadership Matters, The Seven Skills of Very Successful Leaders, is about setting strategy, defining culture. It's about ethical leadership. And it looks at inclusion. It looks at making decisions. And th- those are th- those with, that's the hard work of leadership. And that's why we wrote it, because we wanted to take that kind of road less traveled, I suppose. Um, we're now on the easy one. And uh, so we're, we've, we've signed another publishing deal with, with Major Streets. And our next book, um, The Seven Attributes of Successful Leaders, will be released in October this year. And then taken together, we think what we've got there is a really comprehensive picture of leadership. Um, but just to conclude, i I think the real doing stuff of leadership is just so often ignored, you know.
0: Absolutely. So, just two final questions if I can. Are there any leaders that you look up to or inspire you or who you think uh, set the standard for leadership?
1: well i'll I'll pick uh, I'll pick one um who had a very significant influence on my life. And uh, that was my my uh, boss, my immediate manager at uh, Hewlett-Packard. Um, so she led the HR department at HP. Um, her name was Jane Coleman. And um, I-, I put a huge um, shout out to Jane. Unfortunately, Jane um, passed away at the age of 34. She had a, b- a brain aneurysm. And um, both her leadership style when I worked for her at HP and her uh, subsequent death uh, had a had a huge impact on my life and in actual fact I dedicate leadership matters the book to her um, she she was a simply inspirational leader she was a uh, a female leadership trailblazer she was the person that introduced paid maternity leave both to Hewlett Packard and eventually that that spread to the UK uh, so many people who, if, if you're listening to this in, in the UK and you've had paid maternity leave, Jane Coleman played a role in that. Um, so um, I, I would I would say that Jane is one of the leaders that truly inspires me. And the other one is actually my current um, my current boss. And it, it's always very difficult to say this, isn't it? Because people think, oh, you just uh, you know you're just katawing to your to your current boss. I'm really not. So Anne Messenger is the chair of um, IML's board. Um, She's the person that's led that board through, uh, led board and the organisation through what are incredibly significant changes, and um, has done that uh, with 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 professionalism, with grace, with humility, and. I think both of those strong, really strong leaders have had a very significant influence on my life. And, um, you know, I could say Richard Branson and and, um, Nelson Mandela and those kind of people, but you take those as red. So I thought I'd go for more local ones and more personal ones. Okay. And any last words on leadership? Um, Yeah, I I do have one last thing on leadership and it comes back to something i would said before. Um, I absolutely believe that leaders are made, not born. And for me, um, I think in a world where it's very, very easy to get quite depressed about leadership, and um, you know, you look at you look at political leadership, you look at things that are coming out in the banking royal commission. I think it's very, very easy to get quite depressed about the state of leadership until. I turn back into my organization and I see the people that are going through Chartered Manager. I see some of our emerging leaders. So, some of the younger um, people, you know, in their early 20s to mid 20s and through to their 30s, who are coming along to events and talking and talking about wanting to learn about leadership. And I suddenly get more hopeful. And um, I-, I do have a very, very strong message to. Um, the leaders of, let's say, for example, the banks, and, it, and it's this. You need to take action to make your leaders in your organization, your managers and leaders, intentional. Because the public deserves intentional leaders in Australian companies. It's, it's no longer good enough not to focus on management and leadership. It's no longer good enough and I'm filled with hope about the leadership landscape in Australia and I think it's too easy to, to be depressed about it and I refuse to get depressed because I see in my institute the really good stuff related to to leadership and typically I see people applying to become chartered managers because they want to prove that they're good leaders and that, that really does fill me with with confidence and hope for the future.
0: Well, thank you so much david for uh being part of the the synergy leadership podcast really appreciate your time
1: yeah no worries actually i really enjoyed it thank you very much
0: Well, that wraps up another episode of the synergy leadership podcast i trust you found it interesting a couple of things if you could go online and leave a review of the podcast that would be great really help us in uh, spreading awareness of the podcast happy for you to connect with me on linkedin i'm pretty easy to find and if you want to shoot me through an email julian at synergygroup.com.au see you next time